Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bethany Gilbert, and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune of Cormdeo Church and Pastor Chris Hemmelman of First City Church. On Wednesdays, we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life, and today we're talking about American Babel. Guess we're going to tackle an article from a couple months ago in The Atlantic that many people have been discussing since it came out. It's by Jonathan Haidt. The actual title of the article is Why the Past 10 Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. Best title of an article I've read in years. <laughs> Great title. Everybody's like, yeah, they have been. I want to read that. Yes. Yeah, they have been uniquely stupid. So that's the title of the article. It is from the May um, 2022 or 2022. Sorry, see, I did that again, you guys. <laughs> May 2022, uh, Atlantic. And we'll get to that in a minute. Um, he's making an interesting thesis. The reason we're calling the title of the podcast American Babel is because because Jonathan Haidt starts out the article using the metaphor of the Tower of Babel from Genesis 11, which I thought was an interesting way to talk about American culture. So in my mind, this article shows the ongoing relevance of the Bible, even for people who don't believe the Bible. Jonathan Haidt would say he is an atheist Jew. So he's like culturally Jewish, but an atheist. And yet he chooses the Tower of Babel as his metaphor for describing what's going on in our culture right now, which I think is a just an amazing thing that people still look to the Bible as a way of making sense of what's going on. That says something about the scriptures. But anyways, before we get to that, Chris, you're about to head out on sabbatical. Yeah. We're going to, we're not going to have Chris Hellman on the podcast for Sad. months, y'all. Yeah. Months. Yeah. Tell it's us a little bit about the, about where you're going. What you're doing. Yeah. This is my first pastoral sabbatical, man. So I'm both excited and a little nervous. I think, and it's starting to sort of hit me the nerves, the pre sabbatical nerves. Like, <laughs> What am I going to do for What it? am I going to do? <laughs> and, but uh, yeah, we'll, the first few weeks we'll, we'll just be kind of around here is uh, Mindy finishes out the school year, TCA. And then we're going to head to Florida for June and July. Great nice. idea. And then first part of August, we'll go to San Diego for a wedding. Other good idea. And then we'll be back. So, so basically you're just going on a really long, awesome vacation. Well, that's, that's what the skeptics <laughs> would say. Chris, so how come you as a pastor just get to go hang out in the beach for three months? Yeah, if only. So no, give, for people who don't understand the purpose of a sabbatical, why, why is this necessary and crucial? Yeah. So a sabbatical is an extended period of physical and think mental, emotional, spiritual rest. And I think the best way to, to explain it is this, like being in pastoral ministry is this weird, beautiful, but weird dynamic where your work life, your personal life, home life, everything is just enmeshed in some ways. And, and so there's this sense where you're kind of always on, it's not a nine to five job. And so just the toll that that takes of just kind of living life in this, this world of ministry um, I think it requires being able to just step away for an extended period of time, not just, you know, for two weeks. Even if you have a good um, rhythm of rest, weekly, um, yearly rest, I think the need to kind of step away from ministry, step away from kind of the normal social interactions that will remind you of ministry and kind of always bring ministry up uh, are necessary to spend some time reflecting on, you know, hey, what's what's gone on in my soul over the past six and a half years planting a church? And where are there some knots that need to be untied? What do, what's the Lord been doing? You know, what do I need to be repenting of? I think there's just a lot of things that can kind of go on in your soul that you just don't necessarily have time to engage deeply. So we are definitely looking forward to it, but I think there's also this apprehension of stepping away from work for three months feels really weird. Like yeah. I, I look forward to it, but I also, I think there's this part of me that's like, I don't, what does that even mean? <laughs> what does that look like? How am I going to be able to do that? So we're not going in with a lot of 
goals and programming this, that, and the other. We are, I think the way Mindy and I have talked about it is we want to just establish, what are some good like rhythms that we could establish that will help us engage with each other and with the Lord and rest well, and that hopefully carry, would, would carry over into our normal life as well. And we'll probably check in with some trusted counselors or coaching a little bit. But other than that, we are going off, to take it off. off. Don't yeah, send Chris line. any text messages. No text, and don't no ask emails. him for any yeah. comment on anything. Yeah, I think I'm taking maybe one theology book with me just for fun, but the rest of my reading I'm going to do, I'm fiction. I don't have like that a away. list of books that I'm, I don't have any goals, but I'm just like, I know I'm just predominantly going to read fiction. Love it. Listen, I want all listeners to this podcast to love the idea of pastoral sabbaticals and fight for them in your church. Here's why I think you should do that. The average tenure for a pastor in America is four years. Yeah. So if you want to have a pastor for the long term, <laughs> if you want your pastor to remain in ministry, if you like the person leading your church, at least mostly so, you should care that your pastors take this kind of rhythm because it really does make a difference for longevity in ministry, for sort of sustaining the long haul of spiritual warfare and the struggle of, of gospel ministry. So, uh, man, we're bullish on sabbaticals at Quorumdale. I'm really glad you're doing this. I'm going to pray for you while you're gone. And yeah, thank you. Hopefully we'll even hang out a few times, even though there's no pressure, but I'll invite you over for dinner. You should. <laughs> Except you'll be in Florida. So I'll have to do it at the very end of your sabbatical after your trip. Yeah. Um, why the past 10 years of American life have been uniquely stupid. If you're not familiar with Jonathan Haidt, he's a very important author and, um, professor. He teaches at New York University in the Stern School of Business. And he's written some very interesting book. The very first Jonathan Haidt book I read was The Righteous Mind, which maybe came out 2012 or so. Um, maybe even earlier than that. But, but it, it's he has this metaphor of the rider and the elephant. And his whole thing is we are much more driven by intuition and sort of response than we are by rational thought. And it was just a way of saying like, how come people get in, how come people always think they're right? Is kind of, <laughs> why does our mind always think we're right and other people are wrong? And so it was a very interesting book on that. Then he wrote another book uh, in 2015 with Greg Lukianoff. And then for the past really seven or eight years, he's sort of been consumed with some questions about social media and their effect on society. And especially Jonathan Haidt's a, big believer in intellectual freedom, in free inquiry, in debate and discussion. And he has done a lot of work on college campuses to try to fight for uh, actual debate and exchange of ideas rather than groupthink. Um, so he's an interesting voice in our culture. This is a long form article in the Atlantic. Of the, I printed it out because I forgot my copy of the Atlantic. This is on my <laughs> nightstand at home, but I forgot to bring it with me. So it's 25 pages on my printout, which that'll tell you the, the length of article it is. Mm. Basically, here's the thesis he's, he's giving us. And by the way, Chris, we're talking about this because one of your friends reached out to me on Twitter and yeah, said, hey. Which friend is this? Uh, Bachelor. Is that, that his name? David Bachelor? David, Ronnie Bachelor? Ronnie Bachelor. Ronnie there Bachelor. Yeah. Oh, wow. He was my old youth pastor. Ronnie, there you go. He's Shout out on the Wednesday the, conversation. Such a great pastor. Ronnie. Love you. <laughs> Ronnie asked, he was like, hey, are you guys going to talk about this article? And I was like, well, now we are because you asked yeah. us to. And that's what we do. We do what our listeners want. So um, the, 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 the primary thesis of the article is this. Social media is making our culture a really stupid place. And he doesn't primarily mean this in terms of like, you're becoming dumber because you're on Twitter instead of reading a book. What he means is, he uses this metaphor that 
just like the Tower of Babel has, conf- you know, when God confused the languages of the people there and so they couldn't talk to each other, that that's essentially what social media has done for the American society is it has fragmented us in ways where we can't even really understand each other anymore. And so instead of a collective society working together, debating and discussing and disagreeing, but trying to arrive at a common vision of the future, we instead are all these little tribes fragmented fighting with each other. And he, he, his argument is that social media has done this by, not by virtue of um, what it is, but by virtue of how it's designed that the way that social, the architecture of social media is designed not to make us think, debate, discuss, arrive at consensus, but that it's made to fuel outrage, judgment, criticism, groupthink, tribalism, that social media is actually designed for this. It's architected in a way that it will, it has this effect whether we want it to or not, whether we think it will or not, whether we are really nice people or really mean people. He's like, social media is doing this to us. Chris, you look like you have some things to chime in on. (laughs) It's, I mean, we've talked about social media quite a bit on this podcast. Yes, we have. I think we've raised the red flag of warnings. Why is it that in spite of articles like this, they get a lot of traction, the increasing number of research articles that are being post posted about the effects of mental health, even, I mean, especially, I should say, especially on teenagers, particularly teenage girls. And yet here we are. Yes. You're asking a why question, which aren't the kinds of questions we answer on this podcast. I know. We're it, just going to analyze this article. Yeah. Which, which <laughs> I, I mean, I re, the reason I asked this question, the, the why as a way to get into this article is because there, there is this aspect of we all like like what he, when I was reading this article I'm like, yeah duh, right. You're gonna have that feeling as you as you hear. But listen, I'm gonna get us to two places of amazing hope. Okay, I'm gonna I, Jonathan Haidt at the end of this article is like here's some things we should change. I think his prescriptions are kind of lame, but I have two prescriptions of my own. All right, so let me start with uh, doing a quick historical review, because one thing I enjoyed about this article, here's, here's what happens in my life. I, and maybe this happens to you too, listeners in the now, I forget how we got to the now. And it's always interesting to go, Oh yeah, it wasn't always like this. And like to have somebody chronicle the shift. And so what Jonathan Haidt does is he reminds us that Facebook didn't always have a like button. Twitter didn't always have a retweet button. Like, it's like, oh yeah, there was a time when those things didn't exist. And so he wants to chronicle how social media has changed and why it has changed and why that's a challenging problem for us. So he takes us all the way back to the 1990s. My, I'm trying to remember. So, I mean, this is, this will date me, right? This is how old I am. (laughs) When I left for college, my, one of my best friends from high school went to Duke University I was at the University of Oklahoma. He sent me uh, something. Uh, I guess I guess we had email back then. He sent me an email. I was like, "Hey, go find, go to this website." And he sent me a web link. HTTPS, you know, colon slash slash whatever. I literally I didn't know what to do with that thing, and I had to go to one of my professors and be like, "Hey, what is this thing?" And he's like, "Oh, well, you're going to need a browser software in order to look at that." So I was like, "What is it like?" 
what is a browser software? So he's like walking me through, here's how you use Netscape 3.1 to type in this address and it will take, and I was like, wow, okay, this is like a new thing. So that's how old I am, number one. But that's how in the early days of the internet, you had chat rooms, message boards, email. I mean, it was very, it was really cool because it was sort of like a digital public square. It was like my friend, Brian, who went to school at Duke, we could chat online and interact over the same things even though we were in different places. And so he basically says the first, like the internet 1.0 was just a cool networked version of the, of you hanging out with your friends in the living room, listening to music or whatever. Right now, what happened is that by 2008, Facebook kind of emerged. He talks about MySpace, Friendster and Facebook were kind of the three early platforms that were kind of social media ish. Facebook sort of emerged as the dominant one. In 2008, it had about 100 million users, which was a lot. Oh, now it's 3 billion, by the way. But 100 million, that's a lot of people, right? Um, at that point, there was a lot of optimism that this is going to be great for democracy. This is going to make it so much easier for us to um, communicate with each other and to share information and to you know get common causes going. Uh, 2011, you had the Arab Spring, which was a really, you know, everybody thought, but, well, man, here we're learning what's going on in places like Libya and Egypt through social media in real time. People are posting videos. This is really powerful, right? Um, however, around that same time, 2009 to 2012, some major changes took place in the architecture of both Facebook and Twitter that Jonathan Haidt says were the beginning of the end of, <laughs> of the internet being good, Okay. And um, so 2012 is when Facebook went public. And of course, once something goes public, what does it have to do? It has to make money for its investors. And how does it do that? Through advertising. So um, in 2009, Facebook began offering the like button. And in 2012, the share button. And with the like and the share, the whole dynamic of Facebook changed because the next thing that happened is the designers started building algorithms to try to figure out which posts are getting liked and shared most because obviously we want to drive engagement on this platform. What they learned was the posts that get liked and shared are the ones that are the most outrage driven. They get people angry. It's, you know, here's something bad that's going on in the world or here, can you believe what this person is doing? It's those kinds of posts. So as the algorithms started, you, you might remember, this is another thing I didn't remember. Back in the beginning of Facebook, your timeline was literally just the oldest post to the newest. It was just literally chronological. Once they built the algorithm, now your timeline is curated. You don't even know what it's not showing you. It's only showing you posts that are getting some kind of engagement or posts that some algorithm says, Chris, we want you to look at these ones, not those ones. Yeah. So there's this cloaked invisibility behind what they're showing you that's being driven by algorithms. And basically, Jonathan Haidt says, ever since then, all social media has become is a way of polarizing and fragmenting. It's, it's become the Tower of Babel, where instead of talking to each other and saying, hey, isn't this a cute picture of my dog? <laughs> now it's like, aren't Trump lovers morons? Or can you believe those Democrats? Or it's, it's whatever will stoke any kind of outrage is the thing that goes viral. And so with virality came this sort of um, erosion of trust in one another, in institutions, in society in general. And he believes, um, well, here's, here's his metaphor, is like we handed everybody a dart gun, right? <laughs> it used to be like, okay, um, you know, if you, uh, if you get shot at with a dart gun, it hurts, but it's not terrible. I mean. <laughs> you sound like you've been Well, I was just trying gun. to think about, I haven't been shot with a dart gun, but I have been shot with a paintball gun. It's like, yeah. you know, it's painful, but it's not, you know, you're going to, yeah. it's fine. You're going to get up the next day with a bruise and you're going to be fine. Yeah. But if you get shot 
with a hundred paintball guns at the same time, that really hurts. So he uses darts, not paintballs. But basically what he says is Facebook and Twitter from 2009 to 2012 passed out roughly 1 billion dart guns and we've been shooting one another ever since. And so basically what he says is the, the online social media platforms have given everyone a dart gun and what happens is the people, so, so if you post something controversial, something people do like, something people don't like, something that generates some kind of response, you can immediately get mobbed and get shot at from anyone in the world who <laughs> agrees or disagrees with you. And that is a problem because now he, the way he says is we've deputized everyone to administer justice with no due process. So now we can cancel people without any kind of a trial, without any kind of examination of is what this person said true or not true? Has, you know, did this really happen or is it just a rumor? Doesn't matter. We're just freeing everyone in the world to sort of pile on and administer mob justice. Um, the other important thing here that he mentions, there's a study uh, called the Hidden Tribes Study um, by the pro-democracy group More in Common. And this is really important to know even for listeners of this podcast. What this study showed is that there are seven groups across society in America Think about this in terms of like political affiliation, how much you care about various causes, the way the active, what, what groups you're active in. The furthest right they call the devoted conservatives, that's 6% of the population. The furthest left they call the progressive activists, that's 8% of the population. Those two groups on the far extremes are the most active on social media. Most of us are in the middle somewhere and most of the people in the middle he says in the article, kind of get tired of fights and so they just log off. So what you actually have on social media is these super extreme, small subsets of the population who are very active and very aggressive on social media. And the, the nuanced people that are like, oh, I'm not actually sure, don't, not sure I agree with that. They just log off and go uh, play with, with their kids or, you know, walk the dog or whatever. And so all that does then is to continue to generate fragmentation because when you log on as, as a moderate person and see, oh gosh, these people are like insanely yelling at each other. Like it just, what you start to think is, I guess the whole world is nuts. Like, I guess, <laughs> I guess everybody is ridiculous when in reality, the extremes of the population are somewhat ridiculous. Do you get the sense that he is saying social, like social media has given an outlet to people who are already kind of this way and it's just feeding the fire of people who are already this way? Or is he getting inside or is he actually saying, hey, social media as a thing and the changes that have happened, the like button, the retweet, all the, you know, all the different changes have actually had an formative effect on us that like this is the outcome of social media. Like He is saying the latter. Let me read you a couple okay. of quotes from the article. Social scientists have identified at least three major forces that collectively bind together successful democracies. Social capital, strong institutions, and shared stories. Social media has weakened all three. So what I think is interesting, he's focusing more on the social effects of social media, not on the individual one. So does it make us more concerned and nervous? Sure, it probably does. But what he's saying is it also erodes social capital it erodes institutions 
and it takes away our shared stories and that, that social media has weakened all three of those things, which is bad for democracy. Mm -hmm. It means that like the fabric that's holding us together as a country is starting to fray and that social media is playing an active role in that fraying. So he's not, he's not saying social media is the cause, but it's an accelerant of those things. Yes. Okay. In fact, he uses the language of a solvent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that sort of erodes these things. Yeah. Because I think that's one of the things that can be easy. I think in some ways is to blame everything on social media where the problems of the erosion of institutions and shared stories. Yes, these are bigger. Far, far bigger, right. far bigger. Yes, but here's here's the fascinating thing that I think he points out that I thought, like, this is one of the key points in the article. Um, in the He quotes a former CIA analyst who says that um, social media works as a universal solvent, breaking, breaking down bonds. And this guy notes that distributed networks like social media can protest and overthrow, but they can never govern. So what Jonathan Haidt is saying is social media can tear things down, but it can't build anything. Yeah. Like you can get on a mob and like ruin someone's career, but then you're just going to go eat dinner. Like no one's building, no one's building a new yeah. career for that person or a new institution. And so that's the problem is that this, the energy of deconstructing and destroying is present in social media, but no one can build anything through social media, not an institution like a school or a church or anything like that. You have to be physically present and taking risks to do those things. Yeah, and as another thing that he points out of how social media has both magnified and weaponized the frivolous, mm. and, and you think of if that is the case where the frivolous sort of gets center stage, like building deep institutions and shared stories and all, all the things that are important to democracy, that requires a grasp of the transcendent and the true and the good and the beautiful. And social media just doesn't, it doesn't hold those things up. And, and to the point of building, it, it doesn't allow us to build into those things and embrace those things, which is just, I think, again, another characteristic of how it is a solvent. Okay, so he says, if you want to date, when did the Tower of Babel fall in America? He says it's sometime between 2011 and 2015, um, which is interestingly the time frame in which Facebook went public. And also shortly after, it's, it's when the like and share buttons became prevalent. Um, but here's an interesting point that he makes. And I'm like, I made this exact same mistake. In fact, I was, I'm not going to dig through my phone, but I meant to bring up, because I tweeted in 2016, oh, Donald Trump's not going to win the election. Like after, after the Access Hollywood tapes came out, I was like, well, his, this is, the, the Republicans are going to be done with Trump and they're going to move on to someone like Jeb Bush. And I said that. It was just so obvious to me. I was just like, well, yeah. these tapes, like this has happened in my lifetime. When, when a tape like this comes out, it destroys, like this person's not electable anymore. And so I was just convinced when those tapes came out, this is over. Here's what Jonathan Haidt says. Many analysts, including me, who had argued that Trump could not win the general election, were relying on pre-Babel intuitions, which said that scandals such as the Axis Hollywood tape are fatal to a presidential campaign. But... After Babel, nothing really means anything anymore, at least not in a way that is durable and on which people widely agree, which is, I was like, yep, I made that same mistake. What he's saying is now that because what social media has done is to erode trust in institutions and democratize everything, it used to be if those acts, I mean, this happened to Gary Hart in 1988. Yeah. Like this, yeah. he, he, it wasn't even as bad as Access Hollywood. It was a woman that he had had a consensual affair with outside of marriage. That was the sort of thing that 
uh, sinful people do, but it was not, I don't think it was nearly as egregious as Trump. It was sort of like a, you know, he had basically had a mistress and his wife knew it and some people in his life knew it, but the public didn't know it. And guess what? Then it came out and his career was over. And the reason was because there were three major news networks and, you know, some newspapers and it's just like, well, as soon as that hits the news, the whole world reads that and goes, well, you don't seem like the kind of person we want to be president. Now what you have when those tapes come out and it's clear that Trump, uh, is, uh, it is a, a praying kind of a person, right? I, I think the average person looked at it and go, mm, I do not want that person around my wife, my daughters, people that I love. However, you also had people like, this is the media trying to take, like you had this whole undercurrent of, well, of course, this is the media conspiracy. And so because you had mistrust in media institutions, that moment in Trump's candidacy did not have the durable kind of effect that it would have had a decade before for for almost anyone in that same situation. And so that's it. like a, a example of what he's saying is that that's 2016 and somehow something that would that everybody agreed would have sunk a candidate. I mean we a president got impeached over these kinds of things for goodness sake. Uh that didn't have any effect on Trump's electability or on people's enthusiasm about him or if it did it lasted a week or two and then people sort of moved on. So this is Jonathan Haidt's thesis, I think, playing out saying, yeah, something has changed about the level of trust we have in any kind of news story, institution, report. There's always someone who's going to say that's fake news. That didn't really happen. It's not as bad as you heard. That's a conspiracy. It's just, how do you know what's true anymore? Mm-hmm. Burn it all down. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I feel that way too. All right. So here's what Sorry, I want to turn the corner to his prescriptions. But basically, here's what he says, Bethany, to your point. <laughs> his concern is, it's not burn it all down. It's, it might already all be burning. Okay. So Great. we might not have to burn it down. Here's what Jonathan Haidt says. Um, American democracy is now operating outside the bounds of sustainability. If we do not make major changes soon, then our institutions, our political system, and our society may collapse. Okay. <laughs> Yikes. By the way, he was writing this before the Supreme Court brief yeah. got leaked. <laughs> like, think about institutions being fragmented yeah. or frayed, mm-hmm. right? That, that's another example of... I'm, I'm, I'm curious when your hope's coming in, because I, re- I read that and I'm... I, okay. It's hard, it's hard to see where he's not wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and let's close in despair. Um... <laughs> All right, but Jonathan Haidt's three proposals, I said I didn't think they were very good. Okay, here's what they are. One, harden democratic institutions. I don't, I mean, he's basically saying like, make it harder for parties to game the system, like make the institutions more durable. He's thinking about like changing the rules of the Senate and the House. Like he's talking about there's some reforms we can make that just make these institutions less vulnerable to people who want a platform and that make it, they have to work for consensus and sort mm-hmm. of, so that's one thing, I, you know, okay, interesting proposal, but it's probably not likely to get passed in a world where there's incentive for the parties to sort of play to their um, extremes. His second thing is to reform social media and his main prescription there is user verification. Don't, don't let people have anonymous accounts. His third thing is prepare the next generation, let your kids play outside, get them off the smartphone. In fact, the best prescription he has is 
the most important change we can make to reduce the damaging effects of social media on children is to delay entry until they have passed through puberty. Amen to that. Don't let your kids have social media until they are old enough to vote. That's a simple thing. Yeah. I agree with him yeah. on that. And he basically is just saying like, look, let kids play outside, take them to the playground, get them off the screen. Like we, we have to change how we're parenting. But again, he's writing an article in the Atlantic. I just, you know, it's like not every parent's going to go like, Oh, let me read that article and change the way I parent my kids. I just think yeah. that's, it's a nice prescription, but I don't know how it's going to get worked well, out. And going back to my first point at the beginning, do people even want this? Like, I think this is, I think this is where I'm, I'm more do. skeptical in some ways is because I, I maybe a little bit more than the average person, but you're I, skeptical of I, our I, listeners. I, am skeptical. <laughs> I love you listeners, but I, right now, right now, maybe when I come back from sabbatical, I won't be a cynical. <laughs> but, <laughs> yes. Amen to that. Yeah. But, but th- there is this sense where we're, social media isn't shrinking it like with again with all the studies all the things that come out that are just pointing this big fire is going and yet here we are we continue to feed it and we continue to go after it there's we've been formed it's almost like the the pandora's box of formation is open yes correct and and so i don't even know do, do we want this and you know to what you just said about you know hardening the democratic institutions does anybody want to vote for someone who's going to fight for consensus i think Probably we would, we're, we're all give me the extremist all right, so here are my two prescriptions okay. that I bring think. me bring me back to hope, Bob. Bring me back Listen, to hope. Listen, we talk about this podcast is talking about how the gospel applies to the questions and issues of everyday life. This is a question and issue of everyday life. The, the the erosion of democratic trust in our society, based especially on social media. So here's what the the last sentence of the article, after he gives all these prescriptions. What would it be like to live in Babel in the days after its after its destruction? We know. It is a time of confusion and loss, but it is also a time to reflect, listen, and build. And I think that's a maybe a nod to Yuval Levin's book, A Time to Build, mm-hmm. which, which is a book about the need for us to just build durable institutions. So here's what's interesting to me, is I think actually the church, Christians, can have a massive, there's a massive hopeful opportunity for us here, which is just like actually you gathering with a gospel community in your living room once a week is building something. Um, You giving, investing in the community life of your local church is building a face-to-face, meaningful kind of community that's real, that works against the sort of corroding effect of social media. So I guess my prescription is twofold. One, I actually think Christians can choose to limit social media. And to remember, I think it's helpful to remember that most of what's driving social media are those two extremes. 6% of people on the, on the right, 8% of people on the left. That's 90% of what you see on social media. Like even, <laughs> so uh, I did a debate recently on the right to bear arms. Many people like it. Guess who doesn't like it? Some people on social yeah. media who <laughs> fall into those two camps who yeah. are like, right? And I, I'm just like, I'm just going to simply ignore those voices because I just don't care. Mm-hmm. And so I think for Christians to remember like, hey, most of us are moderate people who value nuance, who value discussion, who can have reasonable conversations with people who disagree with us. And so actually just doing that, hanging out with a friend who doesn't agree with us and everything, 
having people over for dinner who live in the neighborhood who aren't Christians or don't vote the way we do or don't think about social issues the way we do. These are actually things we're already doing as Christians, likely, that work against this. And so I just think that the hope for us is instead of being like, well, our society's falling apart. I think there's great joy to go like, you know what? The stuff we're already doing are the things that are going to solve this problem. So spending less time on social media, keeping our kids off of social yeah. media, and spending time building actual community with real human beings. These are the things that are going to, to change the world. Now, the challenge is your, your neighbors might not be doing that. Your neighbors might be spending all their time on social media. Like maybe the rest of society is not going to do what Christians are going to do to, to lean into community. But I just think, man, this is a great opportunity for the church to just say, because people like Jonathan Haidt, and this is not an alarmist person. I mean, he's a, he's a noble professor at a, you know, snooty university, if you want to say so, NYU, right in the heart of a large city. He's a very measured person. And he, he's literally saying, if we don't change something, our democracy is going to fall apart. It's yeah. like, you know yeah. what? When the, when the sort of like gentle, respectable voices are saying that, people are starting to go, hmm, I think something's wrong with our society. Yeah. And so I think we can hope that, you know what, if we just give ourselves to the basic forms of human community that the church has always valued, we're actually solving this problem. No, I like what you say. It actually does give me a lot of hope. And I think in many ways tracks with some thoughts that I've had related to even with kind of the gender confusion and, and just where we are, kind of how our society views sexuality, that that, that is going to collapse under the weight of its own problems in, in reality. Yes. And the church has a tremendous opportunity to step in and show what it means to be human again. Yes. And it's much the same thing. I think the challenge and, and you touched on it, is you have these extremes and most of the people we don't interact with are in those extremes, yet there are a lot of people who are still on social media in unhealthy and unhelpful ways. And, and I think we can kind of lull ourselves into thinking, well, I'm not that, right? but it's still having a negative yes, formative effect. Yeah, yeah. And so how, how are we creating the kinds of communities that are inviting people out of that? Yes, um, and saying, hey, there's there's this actually better way to live in society and live in community um, and, and, and addressing not necessarily the extreme people. So, I, I mean, I know you know that, but it's just like wrestling through that, I think, as, as Christians, whether you're a pastor, a leader, or just a part of a church community, how are we creating those spaces and those communities, inviting people into that? Yep, excellent. Um, the other thing I think we can do is to love and value nuance. Mm. Which Amen. Which, you know, churches that care about theology tend to do that. And Christians who appreciate thought tend to value nuance. One of the things Jonathan Haidt points out is the problem with those extremists is they're not only shooting the other team, they're shooting people on their own team who are nuanced. You know, it's just like, if you're not willing to say it's either this way or that way, then you're a bad person. And this is happening in the church. You see a lot of Christians who are, are sort of polarized. And if you would be like, man, if you would be open to like, well, maybe there are some different ways to tackle the challenge of abortion in our world. What? Like, you know, there's, there's people who will immediately shoot at you and be like, if you're not in favor of outright abolishing it tomorrow, then you're a liberal. Or, you know, you, you're not reading your Bible. Take any issue, and there's, some, there's a, a way that a nuanced sort of like careful way of thinking through that or the, the assertion that maybe there are different ways of getting at this is immediately going to be branded by someone as you're soft, you're weak, um, you're not you're not a true Christian. And so I think for God's people to say, 
hey, you know what the church can be? It can be a place where we actually value nuance and where we're <laughs> where we agree there might be a noble end in mind and seven different ways of getting to that end that could all be legitimate. That, by simply embracing that and working to cultivate communities where <laughs> there might be healthy disagreement on how should we get to where we need to go, I think is a is a way that we fight against this. Now, I guess what I'm saying is the hope is going to have to be found in a real micro level. I don't think, mm-hmm. Bethany, you're going to wake up tomorrow and be like, man, America is a beautiful place. So <laughs> it's morning again in America. Yeah. I don't think we're going to have that Ronald Reagan morning again in America sort of moment. Um, yeah. But I think you might wake up and go, man, you know what? I had a really good conversation yesterday around my kitchen table with some friends, and that was meaningful. Like, mm-hmm. I think our hope is going to have to be found micro because I just yeah. think the, you know, there are lots of things macro that feel hopeless. But I think what Jonathan Haidt is pointing out in these stats is actually most of America is tired of dissension. They're willing to listen to people who disagree with them. They don't want to fight people on social media and shoot darts at everyone. Most people just want to live life, get along, learn from each other, you know, (laughs) be, be humans in society. And I think we can have hope that not all of my neighbors are crazies who are posting on social media all the time, you know? Do you think, so with that, a thought that just came to my mind though, don't, at some point we do need institutions, right? Yes, absolutely. Macro macro level institutions. So this might be a bigger question than you can answer in a brief few sentences. But as you think about the emphasis on local, how does that eventually translate to the more macro democratic institutions that could be collapsing as well? Yeah. Well, I mean, there are, there are need for Christians to engage themselves at every point along that spectrum. Right. So but that's why I think like institution building is a really noble thing, whether that's being a teacher in a school, whether that's running for a public office, whether that's, you know, leading your neighborhood association. Like there, there's all the think about all the institutions and things that we need for a society to function. Maybe you're a federal judge. Maybe you're like Christians should be pursuing presence in all of these places. But I, I, I guess what I'm saying is I think when I look at Height's prescription of like hardened, durable institutions, that feels very nebulous to mm-hmm. me. Yeah, I'm like, you know yeah. what? You running for city council might be a great place to start, Chris. Yeah. I'll vote for you, you know? Um, so we do have to have our mind on institutions. And I think there is a, a need for Christians to be institution builders. I just think the first step toward that is conversation with our neighbors, yeah. building yeah. a gospel community, loving one another, doing the simple basic things that say, I'm actually having conversations with people who disagree with me or with people who just might agree with me, but actually we're doing it face to face instead of, I mean, it's interesting to think about his biblical metaphor, right? And to say, actually the tower of Babel was God's judgment on humanity. And maybe, maybe what we're experiencing in America is a little bit of the same thing. It's like, yeah, when we sell out to autonomy and independence and self advancement, what God does is kind of give us over to, to where those things take us. And kind of social media is like, self-advancement and self-promotion on steroids, right? Where it's like an audience of a million listening to me rant, but then quickly moving on to the next thing. And maybe in God's grace, he's giving the church in America an opportunity to say, what if we model different kind of community, different kind of life? What, what might that be then in terms of being inviting and engaging and compelling to our neighbors around us? The article is... Why the past 10 years of American life have been uniquely stupid. (laughs) Subtitle, it's not just a phase. So there you go. It's not going to get less stupid tomorrow. But the good news is the gospel of Jesus Christ frees you 
from this kind of stupidity to build beauty. So let's go do it together. The goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in and we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We love to hear from listeners. So if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topics, send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. Bye.